invite you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 12 as we continue to work through Luke. Uh, Old Testament saints uh, lived in anticipation of the Messiah's coming, of his arrival and his establishing the kingdom uh, of God, the, the kingdom that the Messiah was going to bring, that the Old Testament said he would bring. And we see this clearly in the scriptures, uh, Hebrews 11 and 12, or a couple of chapters that talk of this forward look for the Old Testament, how these saints were looking ahead to what God would bring later. And, uh, but we also see it in, in the text that was read for us earlier from Luke chapter 2. Uh, Anna, for example, was at the temple speaking to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. There was this anticipation and waiting of when the Messiah would come and when salvation would come with him. And of course, the Messiah has come, the first advent has occurred, but we also know from Scripture that there will be a second advent, that the Lord Jesus will return one day. So he has come the first time, he has inaugurated his kingdom, and yet the fullness of his kingdom will come later. We are told, and we saw this last week, to seek the kingdom of God. It's something we seek after now. It's something we, that is here now. We enter it by faith now. We become citizens of his kingdom. And yet it will come in fullness later on when the Lord Jesus returns. So this is often the now and what we call now and not yet. It's here, but it's coming in fullness later on. We are saved now, but we'll be even more fully, truly saved with resurrected bodies later on. We are sons now, but we will experience full and true and complete sonship uh, later on. And appropriately enough for this season, time of year, our text today focuses us on uh, the second advent focuses us on the return of Christ. And he's returning, the Bible's clear, and Christians are called, we are called to live in anticipation of this event, of his, of his return, of his coming. And so there are many similarities to the Old Testament saints in this way. There's much we can learn from them. Um, certainly, uh, we, we can see some, some things more clearly. The Messiah has come the first time, and we can see how it was he came and purchased uh, people by dying on the cross and, and, and doing away with the sins of his people. Uh, we live on the other side of this event of Christ's death and resurrection and his ascension. Uh, we live in the inaugurated new covenant. Um, and, and yet, So we look back on that and we can see it clearly and we're grateful and we can see more clearly in Old Testament saints how this will end as well. And yet... Uh, we are still waiting. We, we are waiting the Lord's coming, specifically his, his second coming. And so again, there's much we can learn from the first advent uh, in all kinds of different ways. But among them, the fact that uh, though it might seem, his coming might seem long, it might seem delayed, nevertheless, it's assured. The first promise of a Messiah was given right after Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, Genesis 3.15. And it was many, many years until Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so the promise of his second coming was made many years ago. And yet, uh, assuredly, it is going to come to pass. And we are called then as Christians to live this life now in light of or in view of Christ's return. 
We are living between two Advents, looking back to his first, but also ready, being prepared, and looking ahead to his return, to his second Advent. And so I'll invite you to read with me, uh, follow along in your Bibles, Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 35. The word of the Lord says this. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given Of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So this text calls us to live in light of Christ's return. So what does this mean? What does it mean to do this, to live this way? Well, the first thing is this. Living this life in light of the return of Christ means that we live in a state of expectant readiness for his return. Maybe a bit redundant, but we live in a state of expectant readiness for his return. Uh, we see this in verses 35 to 40. There's three commands given in thir- verses 35 and 36, which all stress preparedness. They all stress readiness, anticipation of the Lord's return. The first one there says, stay dressed for action. This is this wonderful phrase, to gird your loins. Uh, that's what it literally says. Um, this, was, uh, this doesn't really make a lot of sense for us, but uh, it did back then when men wore long tunics, garments to their feet. Um, that's not a very practical thing to wear if you need to go to work, do labor, or run, or go to battle, or something like that. So to gird your loins was to basically uh, pull it up and tie it up so that you can, you're free to be able to run and do labor and go to battle. And so that's why it's translated the way it is, stay dressed for action. It's, a, it's the type of dress that is prepared. It's ready to get to work. It's ready to, to get after it. And so it pictures readiness to act at any moment. It's not laziness. It's preparedness. It's ready for work. It's ready to go. 
Uh, the second there is to keep your lamps burning. So to keep a lamp burning is to not let it go out in the night. It's to keep adding oil back then at least, to keep adding oil to it throughout the night. So you have to stay awake for this. You have to stay alert. So again, pictures a state of readiness and alertness and awake. It's not sleeping. It's not laziness or sloth. It's being ready and prepared and alert. Uh, then the third one, he says to be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So they're waiting for him to arrive, and it says he's, they're ready to open the door and to welcome their master home. And so putting these three together, the point is clear. Disciples are called to live in a state of expectation and readiness for Christ's return. He's going to return. We're to be ready for this. And then amazingly, in verse 37... It says that these people, that the master upon his return, uh, that those people who are waiting for him, it says that he will then gird himself and serve them. He'll serve them a meal, it says. This would not be the ordinary custom for a master to come home and then serve his servants a meal. In fact, elsewhere, Jesus says this very thing to make the point that we as servants Uh, not to expect anything, but just to to serve and have the attitude of being ungrateful servants. Uh, This was not a normal thing for the master to come home and then serve his servants. Uh, But it's quite clear this is a reference to Jesus himself. Uh, This is what he will do. He will come, and upon his return, among other things, he will serve his people a banquet. It's amazing if you think about that. Uh, We'll come back to that verse a little bit later. Um, I, 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 there's a, a song, Brethren, We Have Met to Worship. We, we've sung it here. And there's a line in there that talks about how Christ will come and gird himself and serve us. And the first time I heard that song, I thought, that's not right. Uh, you know, we will be the ones serving Jesus in heaven. That, that's something's out. That's man-centered. But in fact, it's actually um, almost word for word the words of the Lord himself. So, uh, so sing on. When you uh, get to that line, belt it out. Uh, So we'll come back to that in a moment. But it is a stunning picture of the blessing that awaits those who are Christ, those who are awaiting his return. And that return could be at any time. At any time uh, throughout history, we don't know exactly when this will be. And the the point this kind of comes across in verse 38, uh, when he speaks of different watches of the night. Um, the watches of the night, these were different. Uh, the, the night was broken up into various watches where guards would be on duty uh, on the wall of a city, let's say, and they're watching out for people coming, enemies coming, messengers coming, friends coming, and they divide it up into different watches, uh, and that would be the shift of this uh, watchman. So again, this illustrates, again, the idea of readiness and preparedness, looking out for this coming. In verse 39, uh, the parable changes, a shift in parables, but the same point is made. Uh, This time, Jesus is likened to a thief that comes at any hour, uh, an hour that we don't know, and hence the need to be ready, to be ready at any moment. Uh, Had the owner of the house known the hour, Jesus says, he would not have left the house to be broken into. So this is obvious. If you knew someone was coming at 3 o'clock to rob your house, uh, you would prepare uh, for that. There's actually a Christmas movie along those lines, but um, 
anyway. If you knew when a robber was coming, you would not leave your house to be broken into. You'd be ready. You'd be waiting for it. The hour of Christ's return is ultimately unknown. And while there are signs that point to it as being uh, on the horizon, we still don't know precisely when it will be. And so we're to be ready at all times. Uh, This is made explicit in verse 40, where Jesus says, You also must be ready... The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So clearly, living in light of Christ's return means we are to be ready, be prepared. What does it mean to be ready? What does this look like for us? Well, I'd suggest a couple things. The first being uh, that it, it requires faith, first of all. Clearly believing the gospel to begin with. Uh, but also believing that Jesus will indeed return. If we're going to be ready for it, we've got to obviously believe that it's coming, believe that it's going to occur, it's going to happen, that though it might be delayed, though it has not happened yet, yet we embrace Scripture's teaching in faith that it is most certainly going to occur. So it involves ordering our affairs in light of this reality, in light of believing this, uh, ordering our affairs with His return in mind, We believe he will return, so we live accordingly. We seek to be ready at any given moment. Suggest this also means pursuing righteousness now and battling against our sin, against our flesh. Staying alert, staying awake, being ready, it means adopting a biblical mindset and pursuing righteousness. So we're diligent in these matters. We don't, as Christians, we don't want to be found engaged in sin when the Lord returns, but rather with lamps burning, dressed for action, in our work clothes, ready to go. Bags are packed, we're we're waiting for his arrival, we're prepared to go. Listen to the way Peter uh, describes this similarly in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 13. Uh, He uses the same phrase of girding your loins, but he applies it to our minds. And he also mentions uh, our hope of the return of Christ. So it's similar language, similar idea, preparing, living in light of Christ's return. And so he says in 1 Peter 1, 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, literally girding the loins of your mind, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ at his return. What does this look like? He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The time of your exile is is the time of your life, the time in between Christ's two advents. We, are, we live in this earth, and yet we are ultimately citizens of the kingdom of God. And yet we're, we're living kind of in exile here until God's kingdom comes in fullness at the return of Christ. He, Peter continues, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So readiness involves diligence and battle, against sinful passions, adopting a Christ-like mindset and behaviors that are appropriate to that mindset. It's seeking to take our thoughts captive, to make them 
obedient to Christ, to think, uh, think biblically about things, whatever it might be, all of life. We, we're seeking to, to think rightly about it as the Bible would, would have us think about it and then live in light of, of this. Ephesians 6.14 also speaks of standing firm uh, in the armor of God. So all of this is how we wait uh, for the return of Christ. This is how we stand prepared. We're battling now and we're ready for him to come back. But it's not simply or just a state of readiness in which we stand here. There's also work we've been given to do. And so secondly, living life in light of Christ's return means we engage in the work that he's given us to do. We engage in the work God's given us to do. So we see this in verses 41 and 43. As I said, we we battle passions. Uh, We seek to take our thoughts captive make them obedient to Christ. Uh, But we don't just stand here uh, and, and do this and just stand here and it's just this inner thing we, we think about and do. We, we're called to work. We do the work God's called us and we do this with an eye towards the Lord's return. So in verse 41, Peter asks this question. Lord, are you telling this parable for us? That is for the disciples. So I think that's what he means when he says for us. Back in verse 22, Jesus starts to address the disciples. It's the same crowd he's talking to now. Is this for us, the disciples, or is this for everybody? Is this for all? Peter wants to know the audience here. Who is this appropriate for? And Jesus answers somewhat indirectly. And I would suggest to you that his answer, basically, is that what he's saying has relevance for everybody, for everyone, for all. The faithful servant is the one, is anyone, who is found doing what the master desired upon his return. It's not just the twelve, it's not just Jews, it's not just his immediate context. This has relevance for everybody. So in, these, in this parable, I think servants, as we read about servants here, we should think of humanity in general, human beings. We're all ultimately to be God's servants. We're not all God's servants because of sin, obviously. Uh, but, but, but servants represents people, and the master represents Jesus, clearly, the one who's coming. And who is the one that the master will exalt at his coming? The one already doing what it is he desires. That is, the servant who is faithfully engaged in the master's work. So verse 42, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? That is, who who will be honored at the master's return? Answer, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So it's the one already believing the Lord and engaged in the work of his master. Christians, as Christians, we are freed from having to perform any work to merit ourselves a right standing with God. The right standing with God comes only by faith, only trusting in Jesus and his righteousness then being imputed to our account and our sins being wiped clean and forgiven through his death and resurrection. This is a gift God gives in his grace. We cannot earn it. There's no work we can do to merit anything from God in this way. We are freed from that kind of work, that kind of labor. And yet, as Christians, we are given duties Duties which the spirit indwelt believer will take up. 
These are not meritorious works, earning righteousness, contributing to our justification in any sense. But it is the work that's to be done as the fruit of our salvation. And we're called upon to steward the things that God has given to us in a way that honors Him. Many parables reveal this, including the one we're looking at right now, verses 42 to 44. Jobs, kids, spiritual gifts, money, possessions, everything. These are the Lord's goods, and He has given them to us to manage. If you think of Adam in the Garden of Eden, uh, he was to manage creation as God's image bearer. He was given dominion over it. Uh, Now we live in a fallen world, but we do still have work to do unto God's glory. And so being ready uh, for the return of Christ is not merely fighting sin. It's not merely adopting a mindset of readiness, trying to think biblical thoughts. It's also getting about the Lord's work by stewarding what it is that He has given us. So as a church then, it means doing the things He calls us to as a church. Preaching the Word, prayer, reading the Scriptures, Singing songs of praise, baptizing believers, uh, taking the Lord's Supper together, exercising our gifts as individuals to build up and edify the body. Additionally, this means uh, going to work and doing that work with an understanding that this is God's calling for you. Uh, That word vocation... That means calling. And just because it may not be in the church or in ministry, it doesn't mean you're not to serve the Lord in it. If you have a job, God calls you to that job. He's given you that job, and it's your duty then to serve Him in that that job. We do these jobs to, to bring glory to God And we do this until the Lord calls us home or Jesus returns. And so what does that look like to to work, you know, in a way that that it honors God? Well, it's it's applying yourself to your vocation as a way of serving God's purposes out of love for Him. So it means doing your work with integrity, uh, doing it to please God ultimately and not people, not man. Uh, Doing it with honesty, doing it well. You're working hard at it. It also means doing it as a service to your fellow man. Out of love for them. So it's, it's doing the best you can in order to honor God and in order to love your neighbor. Love the beneficiaries of your labor. So if you think about your job, you're doing your job to bring some sort of benefit to other people. And that's an act, that's a way that we can love our neighbors. And so this is, uh, as we work, it's a way of loving God, doing it to honor Him, as a way of pleasing Him, and also to love our neighbor. Really, it's the two great commands. Again, it's not to earn God's favor, but as those redeemed by grace, to do the works that God has prepared for us. Again, we tend to think of good works as just giving things to people, but it's so much more than that. And so, you know, when Ephesians 2 talks about how we've been saved by God's grace, uh, you know, and, and saved that we might um, 
do the good works prepared for us beforehand by God. It means all of life, uh, doing good everywhere, doing good deeds everywhere, and, and working for the Lord. It includes everything. Titus 2 talks about how God has saved us in his grace to make us a people who are zealous for good works, who are eager to do these works that God has given us. None of it is earning salvation in any sense, uh, but it is part of the reason, it is part of what God has saved us to, to do these good works. So it involves even our, our workplaces, doing our jobs as unto the Lord, stewarding all we have ultimately for the Lord. Obviously, this includes our, our kids, parenting. We want to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It includes our finances, what we do with our money, our homes, everything we have, trying to use all of this in a way that would honor God. And, and bring about good for our fellow man. All of it is God's. We want to use it and steward it to serve his ends. So this is all part of what it means to live now in light of Christ's return. Ready, prepared, and engaging in the work that God calls us to. Thirdly, living in light of Christ's return means we are aware of what is at stake. We're aware of what is at stake. As Christians, we are aware of the truth that the Bible teaches, that our lives are a blip on the radar screen, and then we are facing God. Whether that is because we die, or if it's because the Lord Jesus returns. The world, as we now know it, and as has been operating for centuries, will not continue forever. Yet what we do in this lifetime and what we trust in in this lifetime has consequences that reverberate for eternity. In this passage, we see both reward and punishment being mentioned. So we already saw in verse 37 uh, that for those who are ready, waiting the Lord's return, there is a banquet in which we'll, he, he will serve his servants. The Lord will reserve, serve his servants a banquet. And then in verse 44, he says that of the one found engaged in the work of the Lord uh, that he's given him, verse 44 says, truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. That's when he comes. So work and life in the consummated kingdom of God that Jesus will bring about upon his return. Work and life in that kingdom is often presented in terms of feasting and stewarding. Revelation 19 speaks of a feast that accompanies the marriage of the Lamb. Uh, Jesus tells the 12 uh, disciples in uh, Luke 22:30 that they'll eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, he says. So again, eating and drinking at his table in his kingdom. Just feasting. Also in the new earth, we will do work. We will do what Adam was made to do. Namely, exercise dominion over the new earth in perfect communion with God. And we will do this because the last Adam, Jesus, will bring his own into this kingdom. He will make this possible. The Bible pictures this with 
using stewardship language. So here it says we will be put over possessions. We're entrusted with much, we're told elsewhere. Uh, The parable of the ten minas in Luke 19 says that the faithful will be put over cities. So it seems then the Lord will place his redeemed people over all that is his. Now what exactly that's going to look like for each individual person is not clear. But the general picture, I think, is fairly clear. The Bible's presentation of life in the consummated kingdom of God involves stewarding what is the Lord's without any curse upon us, dwelling in perfect righteousness with God himself. It's not a bodiless experience. So I think sometimes, if you're like me, you grow up thinking of heaven as this spiritual realm and place, and it's hard to even imagine in any sense what that is, or what that could look like. So I think it's, it's helpful if we think of um, two different realities, if you will, uh, that there is something that theologians refer to as the intermediate state, that now, between now and when the Lord Jesus returns, when believers die, Paul tells us clearly, we will be with the Lord. While our bodies die and will lay in the ground, we know that. And yet, when Paul says we will be with the Lord, our spirit, our soul, that immaterial part of us will be present with Jesus immediately. And uh, so that is something that, you know, that's how I often think of heaven. And uh, that's true of right now what is happening with, with uh, Christians who have died and uh, believers who have died. And, uh, and yet, in the end, that's not the way it will always be. Uh, that's not our greatest hope. Uh, our great hope is that one day when the Lord Jesus returns, he will return to this earth and there will be a resurrection of the dead in which we will be raised and spirit and body will be united perfectly and we will be made uh, imperishable. 1 Corinthians 15 describes this. And, uh, and, and we will forever be with the Lord in that condition with resurrected bodies. And so, again, uh, there's some debate about what exactly the new heavens and new earth will look like. Uh, some think that this earth will be completely and totally destroyed. And it will be something completely brand new that will be brought about. And that's where we will dwell. Um, but I don't think that's what the Bible's what the Bible teaches, rather uh, that it's this very earth that will undergo very serious change, uh, but will nevertheless be have the curse that is upon this earth because of sin rolled back. Jesus is making all of this new, and we will dwell here in the new heavens and new earth. And that's what that the Bible is talking about when it refers to this, this place. And so that is a real place where we will have actual bodies. In fact, the, the resurrection of Jesus, he had a body that they could, they could touch, they could see. He was a, a person, right? And that is the first fruits of what will later be true of all believers in Christ. We will be like him in our resurrection. And so it's not just this spiritual realm uh, that we can't possibly, you know, there's, 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 there, it's, a, it's actual physical place, so certainly there are spiritual truths that are uh, most wonderful, uh, that we will forever be with the Lord, that we will be perfect, that we will see him face to face. Uh, all of this is wonderful and true. And yet it is also true that we will have bodies, that our bodies will be raised. 
Obviously, this does not answer every single question. It is still hard to fathom. And yet, this is the Bible's picture. This book is called Work and Our Labor in the Lord. It's by Jim Hamilton. He was our pastor when we were in Louisville. And he just walks through uh, work and labor throughout the whole scriptures. So starting with the work that God gave Adam before the fall in the Garden of Eden, uh, what work looked like after the fall with thorns and thistles and the curse upon the ground, what work looked like in uh, under the old covenant in Israel, what work looks like as new covenant believers, and what it will look like uh, in the consummated kingdom of God when the Lord Jesus returns. It's a short book, it's good. Uh, but he says this, and I just want to read this. He says, And when Jesus returns, he will set in motion the events of the end that will culminate in the heavens and the earth, becoming what God originally built them to be, a cosmic temple. In that cosmic temple, the people who belong to Jesus, who have been transformed into his image, will rule and subdue, work and keep, and no snake will ever enter that garden to speak lies to the bride of Christ. Jesus himself will ensure the safety of that redeemed place. So again, it's hard to imagine what exactly our work, what our stewardship would look like in that place, what it, what it would look like for it to be purely a joy and not uh, an oppression to us, to not have our work infested with thorns and made difficult by sin. But that's what it will be. That's what the scriptures say it will be. This passage speaks of blessedness that will come to those who are waiting for the Lord Jesus, but it also speaks of punishment. Uh, Look at verse 45 again. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does uh, does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. These verses depict different severities of punishment for different levels, you might say, of unfaithfulness. The summary of it is in verse second half of verse 48. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. Specifically here, it seems the issue is knowledge of God and his word. Knowledge that is either received, stewarded well, obeyed, or rejected, ignored, rebelled against. Uh, the first person here in verses 45 to 46, this picture is someone who has heard, knows the truth, and yet rebels against God by abusing all that he's given them, abusing others, and living in debauchery. He's motivated by apparent delay in the master's coming. He's not coming, he hasn't come. And so this is not ignorance. It's a picture of willful and knowledgeable uh, defiance of the master. So this person knows, has heard, knows, has some intellectual understanding, but rejects it and actually goes the opposite direction. It's possible that Jesus has in mind here teachers 
and leaders in the church who rebel and end up rejecting the Lord. Many uh, interpreters see that here. People like Judas and other wolves and such that end up opposing the Lord and his work, though claiming to be teachers. It is the highest form of rebellion pictured in here, and it's the ultimate in culpability. And the punishment that's described here is therefore incredibly harsh. And in verse 46, it's described in very graphic nature. In Matthew's account, uh, the place of the unfaithful where this person is said to be cast is a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is none other than hell, the final place of the rebellious wicked. Uh, The second person that's described here in verse 47 is the one who likewise knew his master's will and yet failed to do it. So we don't see the same amount of rebellion present in this individual, but it is still a knowledgeable rejection of what the master has said to do. He knows what is to be done and yet doesn't do it. And Jesus says such a person is worthy of a severe beating. Some people think that this describes a true believer who is chastised by the Lord. Um, They would say this because uh, it doesn't say that he is put with the unfaithful explicitly in verse 47. However, I think the picture of a severe beating upon the master's return is inconsistent with the Bible's picture of a believer's salvation, especially even just what we're seeing here, the joy uh, that upon the, the Lord coming back to those who are his and a feast I don't think this is describing a true believer, but rather an unbeliever, someone who knows the truth and yet doesn't do it, doesn't believe it. And so I understand, again, the differences in these punishments that Jesus lays out is simply uh, to say that there are varying degrees of it. All of it is eternal. All of it is hell. All of it is awful. But there are varying degrees of it. The Bible, I think the Bible makes this clear in different places. Hebrews 10.29 speaks of a worse punishment for those who trample underfoot the Son of God versus those who were disobedient under the Old Covenant. So it's worse to disobey Christ and His words uh, than even Moses and His words. Uh, Luke 10.14 we saw when we were there. It says, Jesus says it will be more bearable so less bad, more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon, these pagan cities, than for the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida, these people of Nazareth who were seeing the Lord himself, who was there teaching, sending out his disciples to teach. He's performing miracles. They're seeing him themselves, and he's saying it'll be more bearable for those pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon than for you. So I think, again, Jesus is using here different punishments in this parable to show different degrees of punishment for unbelievers, which is all to say that God is just and that punishment will will fit uh, the sins that have been committed. Uh, The third person here in verse 48, the beginning of verse 48, this is the one who acted in ignorance. It says he still did what deserved a beating, but will receive a lesser one, a light beating, Because he acted in greater ignorance, which means he's not been given as much as other people, and so less is expected of him. It's understandable if he's not been given as much. Now, 
He has a conscience still. Every person still has a conscience, yes. Um, But perhaps such an individual has never heard the word of God, has never read or received the written word, has never maybe heard the gospel. Romans 1 to 3 uh, verse, ch- chapters 1 through 3 reveal to us that such a person is still guilty before God, is still culpable before God, and Jesus is saying the same thing here. So while ignorance is punished less severely, it's still punished. Ignorance does not get anyone off the hook in these words. The reality is, none of us here are in this third category. We have heard the gospel. We've all probably owned the scriptures. We've all been given much. God Almighty calls us and summons us to repent of our sin, to trust in his provision for our sin. His son Jesus, who lived the perfect life we cannot live, earned a perfect righteousness, who died on the cross to pay the penalty that sinners deserve, to rise again from the dead. And the gospel says, look to him. Turn, forsake yourself, forsake your own righteousness. Look to Jesus Christ in faith. Confess your sin to God, and you will be saved. And the Lord Jesus has told us that he will return, and it is those who are displaying the fruit of readiness who will be welcomed into his feast, welcomed into his kingdom. On the other hand, those who delay, those who rebel, those who ignore God's word will be punished appropriately for their sins. And so the stakes very clearly are high. And so as Christians, as believers, living in light of Christ's return means living with a continual awareness of what is to come. It means lifting our eyes to consider eternity and to contemplate eternal blessedness. And this is a a reminder, if we do this, a constant reminder and encouragement and motivation to stay the course. Whatever comes now our way, whatever trial might come, however much we don't understand about what it will look like when the Lord Jesus returns, however long or delayed Christ's return may seem, we're called to lift our eyes to eternity to consider eternity and consider the return of Christ and to see what is at stake again. To remember, uh, to, to, to think about, to dwell upon our hope of eternal life spent with the Lord Jesus, dwelling with him. And so let's be those then who push past all the noise in a world that's designed uh, to keep us from looking anywhere than what is right in this very moment. Let us push past that to consider eternity and labor in light of it. The Lord Jesus has come. Jesus was made incarnate. He was God who took to himself, God the Son who took to himself human flesh. He came as a baby to bring about salvation for his people. He became like his brothers to bring about redemption for his brothers and sisters. He has inaugurated the kingdom of God, and yet there will be a future return of Christ, a second advent in which he will come to consummate his kingdom. And we now live between these two advents, 
trusting in him, trusting in Jesus. That he came the first time to deal with sin, to put our sin away. So we're looking back on that, we're trusting that, and they're now looking forward to his return and living in light of that. Doing so in a state of expectant readiness, engaging in the work that he has called us to, that he's prepared for us, and with a constant awareness of what is at stake. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Father, there's much to rejoice at in these words that we've read. And there's, there's also much to be sober about in, in these words we have read. And even, even those of us who would rejoice in the salvation that is to come, that awaits us upon the return of the Lord Jesus, as we consider what is at stake for those we know who do not believe this, this is heavy. And so we just we, we pray that this would cause in us a love and a compassion for the lost, that this would cause us to overcome fear of man. We pray that this would cause us to become fervent in prayer for other people, for the lost. So I pray that you would encourage us in these things, encourage us to this end. Father, I pray that each person here would be those who, who see their, our lost condition and who are trusting in Christ, who are trusting he came to deal with sin, who forsaken ourselves and our own righteousness, who, who know the severity of what's at stake, that we will stand before you one day, and who are eagerly anticipating the return of Christ. Father, I pray that we might be filled with joy, that we might be uh, have our, our, our hands strengthened, our weak knees strengthened, our heads, drooping heads lifted, that we might look to the return of Christ, look to the new heavens and new earth that he will establish. And while there's much we don't understand and see, you've given us enough to know that it will be glorious beyond what we can imagine, that we will be with you face to face, that we will be able to steward the things that you have given us in perfect communion with you, that there will be no more sin, that righteousness will dwell there. Father, I pray that we would uh, be encouraged by this, that we would be strengthened by this. And even as we celebrate, rightly so, celebrate, Christ's first coming, your son's first coming, in which he came when the time was right in the fullness of time to be born of the Virgin Mary. And even as we celebrate that in this season and in these days and beyond these days and beyond this season, pray that we would also remember that this same Jesus is returning and he is returning in glory Father, we pray that you would cause us to rejoice in this and cause us to live our lives in light of this. We pray that you would forgive us where we have failed to do this, and all of us can look to areas where we have failed to do this, where we 
Do not steward things as those which you have given us, but as uh, things which we sometimes make idols out of. And we pray you would forgive us and help us, Lord, to have the strength and grace to turn those to you and treat those as gifts you've given us to use for your honor and glory. Father, we pray you would be pleased to work righteousness in our hearts that we would just, just further know you and trust you and love you. We pray you would do all of this for our joy and for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.